Madison, we're back with another podcast, and this one we did together. Abby and Connor, they have a production company, A2C, so without further ado, let's get to it. This is good. Well, Abby and Connor, welcome to the Inqua podcast. I've got Madison here, a new co-host, but longtime writer for Inqua magazine. Let's start off with you guys. How do you know each other? When did you first meet? We've known each other for <laughs> yeah, a little over two years, and we met through a mutual friend at my acting studio, Crash Acting, here in L.A. I had been in L.A. for about four months, and I was looking to produce and create my own short film from start to finish. And I kind of announced this in class, and I said I was looking for a producer, somebody who kind of knew it already and could show me like the arc of what I was trying to get involved with. And this guy introduced Connor and I, and we got lunch, and I kind of pitch connor this idea which at the time i didn't really know the scope of what i was trying to do and we've been working together ever since yeah that's awesome and had you both been in la for a while oh so, abby had only lived there for like what six months something like that and i had been living in la for about five or six years at that point i moved here in 2017 so i had a good little stint already in los angeles when did you first get started in the industry connor were you already working in film yeah, so I, I got started, gosh, probably back in like 14. I started in Austin, Texas, of all places, and kind of worked my way through the scene out there. I was working at a couple of sound stages and hopped on a couple of commercials and things like that, and just kind of was trying to... I dropped out of school and, mm-hmm. you know, for various number of reasons, and was just trying to navigate how to even start a career. And... Yeah, I had a, an old partner that I had moved in with and we had started. And then eventually in 2017, we both moved to Los Angeles into an artist's commune off of Melrose. So yeah. that's awesome. And what about you, Abby? Did you come to LA to do acting and producing and directing? So I acted as a child. I acted from like the age of six to 18, primarily in theater, musical theater, also modeling. And then I went to college for neuroscience and about halfway through my college degree, I got re-signed for like commercial and theatrical talent in San Francisco. And then I was all gung-ho to move down to LA my senior year of college, but I graduated in 2020. So as I graduated, it was the start of the pandemic. So I moved home for like a year and a half and my parents are in Houston, Texas right now. And I actually signed with agents out in Houston who I now like absolutely adore and love. And I started working on like more film and commercial stuff while I was out there. And then I moved out to LA in, I think, 2022. <laughs> and yeah, I've been out here ever since just for acting and then have more recently over the past two years pivoted into producing and directing. Having left neuroscience, what you were studying and everything else and coming over to acting, were there some moments where you thought, <laughs> I'm doing the wrong thing or I should go back? Or how was that early on? I mean, I'm not wanting to go back to neuroscience, but there are, there are parts of that world that I really miss. I think one of the main things I miss is having like really intellectual conversation with people about something that's totally esoteric. Like I just don't find a lot of people in LA who are interested in those things, which obviously, but I do find that a lot of the way that I understand how to work and study and get things done is really beneficial in the film industry because I'm approaching it from a very like scientific way to get things finished and researched and like, let's make sure we cover all the possible bases. So I miss it in some respects, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a doctor and I knew that. Yeah. So now both of you having worked in Texas, Connor, do you feel like it helped working outside of LA and coming to LA or do you think you should have come here first? That's the tricky question for me. I think it's, 
it's tough because the LA scene is a lot different than everywhere else. And I think every other state has their own scene. You know what I mean? And I've worked in a couple other states at this point and definitely very grateful for the experience I had in Texas. You know, I, I got to be exposed to a lot when LA is a bit of a monoculture in the film industry, yeah. right? It's very, very large. Everybody kind of agrees on, on what the culture looks like in film. And I think when you go to those smaller markets, it's a little more fractured. So I found that I was, I was working in one kind of circle for, you know, a year or two. And then when I tried to expand into other circles within Texas, even Austin, I would get told that I was doing things wrong. Or I didn't know what I was doing. And it's like, who taught you how to do this? You know what I mean? So yeah. there's, there's kind of a weird dissonance that happens there. And when I moved to LA, what I noticed is the experience that I had from Texas basically didn't matter to the people in Los Angeles. And I've kind of heard that from other people too. Like even people who moved from New York have said, oh yeah, I basically had to start over when I moved yeah. down, you know, which is weird, you know, because I mean, filmmaking should just be filmmaking ultimately, right? I have a, a camera operator friend and then another guy who's like a creative executive and same thing. They came over and restarted a career of eight years and it was like, I hadn't realized it was so different place to place. Yeah, I was an assistant to this producer who was show running this show for Bobcat Goldthwait a couple of years ago. And she moved to LA after 9-11. And she'd been working in New York for, I mean, probably 15 years at that point as a producer. You know what I mean? And even she had to start over. And it's like, how? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how have you not earned your stripes at that point to like collectively? It's yeah. just so, so odd. And you mentioned you would work with the Duplass brothers. Were they based out in Texas or was that when you came to LA? No, they're, they're based out of LA. So I think they graduated from UT yeah. and I've got a lot of opinions on, on film schools and how they treat their alums and stuff like that. But yeah, they're, they're based out of LA. They're a super cool company and I loved, I love working for them for a number of years. And I've still got a lot of friends who, you know, work there and have worked there. I mean, what were some of those lessons you learned from them, HBO, Disney, that you are taking into the production company with you and Abby? Oh, man. Working for the Duplass Brothers, you learn a lot. I mean, about filmmaking, about kind of boots on the ground filmmaking practically, and really about the kind of filmmaker that you want to be, you know, working. Because the company, I think people hear the Duplass Brothers and they think massive, you know, company. And really, it's like, I wouldn't call it massive. It, like the brothers are coming in, you know what I mean? They're coming into the office and like hanging out and having breakfast. Like it's, yeah. and everybody's kind of like just sitting at desks and having coffee together. And it, it's, it's very communal, you know? And I think the biggest lessons that I learned there that have translated to what we're doing in the company right now have been how to work with a very low budget. And I, and I, I mean that in the sense of, you know, how to really stretch things and how to, how to make the most with what we have available to us, right? Because that's kind of the Duplass Brothers model is, okay, figure it out. So being kind of resource thin, but creative in execution is uh, pivotal in what we've been doing. Yeah. And Abby, you started acting. What, what made you want to do producing and directing? Was that always your goal or did you want to be just an actor for a while? Or what was your plan there? I had directed things before, but only okay. on stage. I had directed plays and musicals. And actually during the pandemic, I directed or like co-directed a, a pretty large scale musical and absolutely freaking loved it. I think when I was little, that was always something I wanted to do and kind of was doing. just didn't really know in what avenue I could do it. 
Cause I'm like, I'm a pretty bossy person and I'm a pretty type A. So like the directing producing role is like supernatural for me. It's like, it makes perfect sense. And I think moving out here, even in the first six months I was getting all these auditions and I was like, okay, this is not the material that is super interesting to me. And like, as someone who came directly from a STEM background, like the year before, and I was like taking the MCAT and studying and like working for an oculoplastic surgeon. And like the people I was surrounded with were like predominantly men and like very cut and dry, you know, theologian type intellectual people. And then I would get auditions for like hot girl at bar. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> like I'm no not name, a hot no girl at bar. Name. Like that's, that is not me. <laughs> so I was finding this dissonance between like the way that I presented to people and the way that I actually am. So I'm like, maybe I should just write something myself or like direct something myself where I can figure out like, okay, how do I want to be perceived? And then that turned into like, I loved the producing side of it, which I never thought I would, but like being able to tangibly organize people in an actionable way is so satisfying to me. It's like turning in your lab report and getting a 100. I'm like, oh, we organize this project and we like raise money for charity and then it's done. <laughs> it's like so it's so much more actionable than acting because acting is so much of like a waiting game. But at the same time to what Connor was saying about coming from Texas, like I work in the Texas market all the time and I love being able to work in different markets. Like as an actor, it totally translates like no matter where you are. Yeah. And if yeah. any, like coming from LA, I'm like the LA actor they flew in. So you're getting like this false sense of legitimacy <laughs> and everyone's like, Oh, she came from LA. I'm like, I'm just based in LA. Like I just work local hire in Texas. Like there's truly no difference, but yeah, it's, it's kind of opposite as an actor. So that was interesting to hear. So they get you the salad, the green juice, you're the LA actor. That's no, kind of nice though, right? <laughs> you're holding an umbrella. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Literally, I had a PA holding an umbrella in my last commercial. They're like, get her the umbrella. She needs it. I was like, I, all right. Well, I mean, you just mentioned this and I, and I want to, for our listeners and just for me, you know, the more I've been learning now too, producer seems like such a vague term and there's so many different types of producers. You see the credit list. Someone could just be offering money. Someone could be doing everything. What is a producer as far as with you guys and your production company? What is a, the role of a producer? Gosh, that's Gosh. unfortunately we have to answer vaguely, right? Because really what we do is everything. And I mean, I would say the majority of our job is making connections, sending out emails and organizing. That's that's kind of the majority of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think as a, as a producer, that's really, uh, I was talking to somebody about this recently, and I think there are different modes that producers can take, obviously, but the biggest one that uh, producers kind of have is that of like a bondsmith. Like we really, we're supposed to kind of forge bonds between people and make those connections to translate onto projects. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's about understanding where everybody is and what connections we can be actively making that are going to be positive for what we want to accomplish and what others want to accomplish as well. So, I mean, Abby, Abby has to push me all the time to get really like, we have to go out and socialize and make sure we're reconnecting with people. And constantly staying up to date on what people are doing and kind of where they're at and what projects they're looking for and that kind of thing. And so, you know, dipping back into keeping up with everybody, you know, that we know. So, yeah. I don't know, Abby, what do you think? I mean, yeah, a big part of it is we're organizing, we're project leaders, but we're, we're very much on the side of we're creative producers because like we've talked to a couple companies who are interested in working with us and like we can make something from the ground up. Like either we'll write it ourselves, we'll shotlist it ourselves, or we'll find somebody with a script that we like, and then we'll like direct it, we'll create it, Connor will edit it. So like from start to finish, 
we're like truly producing it. Like we're creating something that didn't exist before. So I think we've met a lot of producers who truly are just like business people, like they're organizers, but I would, I would classify those people as more EPs in my book. Like if you're someone who never touches anything creative and you just organize or sometimes finance, you're an EP financier. And if you're someone who creates something original and organizes people, stays up to date, stays connected, but also creates a project, that's a producer. Right. Yeah. Going through scripts and making sure things are creatively kind of succinct and then looking at edits and talking to, you know, the creatives that are also on the project, that kind of thing. We we actually take a lot of pride in that and the amount of, not control, but we want our fingerprint to be on everything that we make creatively. And Abby's a, a wonderful writer and, you know, I, I edit all of our, our shorts that we've made so far and all of our commercials and things like that. And it's really just in an effort to make sure that a piece of us is going out whenever we finish a project. Which is great. Yeah, your fingerprints on everything. It's not just a business investment. It's a it's a passion. It's right. Your creativity is coming out through what you guys are producing. Right. Well, and we talk about this all the time. If we were just in this for the money, we made a really bad decision. <laughs> There's a lot better ways to make money. You know what yeah. I mean? Well, talk about the decision to like start your own production company, right? Because like that's a, that's not nothing to start your own production company, especially when you know there are a lot of production companies out there. Like what? what was what went into the mindset to start to be like we're going to start HD we're going to we're going to build it from ground up like what was what was that decision like it was like super normal it was really normal actually <laughs> it was like really normal so Connor and I and like looking back on this now we're starting to see that what we did was quite unique because I didn't know like this was my first foray into like making a short film so I was like oh this is just like how it goes and we had like a massive journey with our project we threw a gala and raised tons of money for like charity we also were in you know, all these newspaper articles so like. Looking back now, we kind of set the groundwork for starting a company from the first project that we did because of the number of things we got involved with, like connections we made, articles we were in. Like we created kind of our own public image through one project. And then we were like, we should just keep doing this. Yeah. So I guess, and to speak more on the specifics of, I think, what went into it, you know, I've been working in LA and in the short film and indie scene for a couple of years at this point. When Abby and I were making the short film Positive, that was the film that we were working on together. And a trend I noticed is typically indie filmmakers would work on one project for about a year and a half or two years. And, you know, the, and the final result would be it would go through the film festival circuit and they'd be promoting it for, you know, a year or two. And then that's it. And then at the end of like two and a half years of work, they have one short film. Yeah. And maybe takes them like a year to edit and then another year on the circuit. And then it ends up on Vimeo or YouTube, which sucks because like shorts are wonderful. We, we really do love short films. And I just found it frustrating that the process couldn't move faster. You know what I mean? That we would be stuck in edits, that we would be hung up on decisions, that, like small decisions that creatives would be kind of holding the project up with. And Abby is a very big pusher, which is good. It's like she's got this personality that just wants to kind of drive down the line as fast as possible, right? Which is awesome because uh, it gets things done. And that's that's something that, again, we take a lot of pride in that. Our turnaround time is super fast. So we finished shooting positive in May, I think, Abby, right? Yeah. And we had an edit done by, I want to say July, like a finished kind of completed edit. And we were working on it up until the gala that we threw, which was like just a screening. It was like a charity event for... The, the Woods Mitchell Pavilion Scholarship. Yes, that one, the scholarship. Yeah. And we raised a bunch of money for that. And, you know, after that, we were like, do we want to start a nonprofit to keep this going? Like, what? 
and we were just sitting in a Starbucks. And we were like, let's just start a production company, I guess. Like, and then we did the like we filled out most of the paperwork that day in Starbucks. Like, yeah, we did. You know, wow. And it was mostly, I think, just a we like working together. You know, we like the fact that we both are kind of on the same page as far as the speed at which we like to work, and creatively, we're also pretty in sync. So, you know, why not? Right. Ultimately. A2C inspired by Starbucks. Yeah. Put that on the end. (laughs) Now, you both had worked on things before. What did you learn about the first few shorts you produced? In addition to the speed, was there some lessons you guys had once you started the production company of, you know, making the first few things? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Abby, do you want to start on this one? (laughs) Sure. I mean, so for reference, last year, Connor and I did four shorts and a commercial. And Positive was the year before where we did one short. And like, made Positive and all in all from start to finish, it was like eight months, eight or nine months. Yeah. And then last year in eight or nine months, we made five times the amount of projects. Wow. So I think from that first one, like eight months, I was like, eight months is so freaking long. Like, why is this taking so long? And there were so many, there was so much time being wasted of us giving something to someone and then waiting and working on someone else's time and being like, okay, our editor has taken three months to do this. Or like our colorist is taking two weeks. Like, why are you not answering a phone call? So I think last year, a big thing that we learned was we're going to do as much of the process as possible. Like we're going to control that. And then whenever we bring anyone else on, we're going to set from the very beginning, this is the time frame. Here's a contract that denotes the time frame. So if you don't get us these deliverables in this time frame, we're working with somebody else. Or like you no longer have ownership of the thing. So paperwork and time frames, and knowing that like you can get things done that quickly. Because when right. people say, "Oh, it'll take me five to ten, like no, it won't. If it's yeah. their priority, it'll take them a day. Yeah, yeah. Creatives don't work on a very good, in general, on a very good schedule. The more people I meet, the more I'm like, if you tell me you have three months, they'll do it the night before, three months later. Oh, I, that's yeah. Great. And frankly, that's kind of the way I work on some things. Yeah. And so I, I did when I was 16. I did the summer program at USC out here and for filmmaking. And I had this wonderful professor named Beth Block who said she had a really this really great quote. And I'm sure she was I, I think she was quoting somebody else, but she said, directors are the voice of creativity and producers are the voice of reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty relevant to what we do is we're not only the voice of reason, we're the voice of deadlines. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we're very strict about our deadlines. And I think when we are strict and enforce our deadlines, that means that makes other people kind of move at a pace they never knew they could move at before, right? Yeah. What are the what are the stories you guys are interested in telling um, as a production company? The stories that we're interested in telling as a production company, you know, it, a big part of what we do is working with nonprofits, and that's something that we talked about, like at the you know, kind of the inception of what we we're working on with the production company. And so our stories and a lot of the, all the scripts that we have so far are ones that Abby have written. They tend to revolve around kind of female focused and led stories kind of coming of age and figuring out pieces of life that are important and usually revolving around themes that we can attach to a charitable organization in some capacity. Because that, that's like a big, that's a big part of both of us is working with charity and working with nonprofits and that kind of thing. I don't know, Abby, you, you, you write all the scripts. What do you think? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, it's hard because I don't think I try to write a specific genre or thing. And honestly, like when I do try to do that, it always turns into something else. And then it's really confusing for me. So 
as it stands, like of the feature scripts that we have and of the projects we're about to make, like one is a psychological female-led thriller, kind of a la Gone Girl, and we're shooting that feature in December. We have like a road trip feature, which I wrote to be a thriller, but it's actually like a feel-good coming-of-age movie. So that's really interesting. And then I wrote another like coming-of-age movie that I thought was another like psych thriller. And people are like, it's a dark comedy. I'm like, all right, it's a dark comedy. So it's funny. I, so I don't really know genre-wise. Yeah, I think just ultimately it's stories that impact us for whatever reason. And I guess we're still figuring out why they impact us. And I think that's kind of a, a fun question to still look for, right? That, that's the discovery part of what we're doing. Like in 15 years, someone will be like, oh, you can see the through line of A to C film. Right. <laughs> yeah, and we'll exactly. be like, sure, of course you can. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's exactly what <laughs> that we're That was intentional. Correct. <laughs> Speaking of 15 years, I mean, you, you're shooting some features. You have more coming on this year. What's your guys' goals for five years, 10 years, 15 years out? Be able to take a nap once in a while, maybe. Hey, there you go. I guess some of the goals that Connor and I have talked about is this year we're really focused on scaling our company. We really want to like hire people and start bringing in some new voices because we're starting to get these projects attached and like greenlit, which is super exciting for us. But we want to make sure that we grow in the direction of people who really want to learn producing and really want to work with us and like have that same passion and drive and love of deadlines that we have. So that's one of our goals this year. And then also like. I mean, I personally would love, like we've talked about this, we would love to go to some like bigger film festivals next year and kind of do the same thing we did at AFM and like meet people and like get out there and like do the festival circuit, even if we don't have a film out there, just to like go be producers at bigger festivals and see what that is like as well. Yeah. And I think one thing that we talk about is, as a goal at least, is how to be self-sustaining, you know, in, in all aspects, not just in the creative one where we you know, we can write, we can shoot, we can edit and control the whole process. But I mean, also financially, right? Like how can we make sure the company is going to continue to run and that we can set ourselves up to not have to worry about the grind and we can focus on the creative, you know, and allow the creativity to just kind of flow and be as pure and as kind of unfiltered as possible without the need to worry about the financial engine. So uh, trying to figure out how to set ourselves up for that is interesting it's tough because like we said making money in the industry is really hard for whatever reason so yeah sounds like that bigger hurdle everyone's got to try and cross to to stay in the game long enough to keep doing it which is Mm -hmm. definitely Mm -hmm. the key well i guess to wrap it up when you guys are not working are you still consuming a lot of tv and movies how do you unwind when you're not living the life of producer director writer actor Abby goes on a lot of hikes from what I hear. And I I play piano pretty avidly. That was like the first creative thing I ever did. I started playing when I was five. So that's like what I do. I'm terrible. I don't watch TV, which like don't tell people that, but I seriously (laughs) don't watch any TV. I have no idea what's going on. I do go to the movies a lot though. I go like once a week. So I see every movie that comes out and then any like indie weird movies like Connor will recommend me. I watch those. Occasionally I'll be like, all right, I want something French weird. I want something gory. Like I will, I will do that. I love a good like 90 minute movie on Canopy. That's just so bizarre. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, outside of movies and stuff, I'm, I'm a big runner. That's, that's kind of my, my outlet. I've got a half marathon coming up next week and I have no idea how I'm going to do it. I've not been training over the winter, but beyond that, I, I'm constantly watching stuff. I mean, I, I love short films. That's kind of like, you know, our, our Instagram is, you know, we do a lot of that. And I love, I love art house movies. Like 
I'll, I, I usually watch two movies a day if I can help it. It usually be like one feature, one documentary. That's kind of what I'll go back and forth on. And so, yeah, I'm not as big on TV. I've been getting into it recently, but I'm really slow on the update. Like I just watched Slow Horses and I think they're on season four or something. That's like great show, by the way, if you're, if you're on Apple TV. So. Yeah, Apple TV. Yeah, Gary Oldman, right? Yeah, Gary Oldman. And Severance. Oh my gosh, Severance is one Severance of my favorite shows great. that's out right now. So. Yep. Highly recommend. What have you watched recently, Abby, that you've loved at the theaters? What stuck with you? Oh, Tar. That wasn't that recent, but like that, yeah. it, I, that is one of my favorite movies. I yeah. loved that movie. I wish I had made that movie. So I felt <laughs> like angry in a lot of ways because I love classical music. That's such a big part of like who I am. And like my sister's a classical opera singer and I'm a classical pianist. Just like that is my world. So seeing, seeing someone do it through like a really dark, psych thriller lens i just obsessed with that movie and then this past year four things right. is one of my favorite directors yeah, Yorgos is one like, of the favorites <laughs> if you give someone infinite resources it's like let's just see what he does and that's what he does it's so fucking fantastic like god the movie rocks yeah i know i what watched wonka you? in theaters this past like over christmas and it made me cry i thought it was such a beautiful movie which i was expecting to go in it and like it'd be goofy and you know a very corporate and studio but i liked it a lot so. Timothy, he he delivered. He delivered. I know. Yeah, that Timothy Chalamet's got something, eh? That's <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, someone to watch, right? Someone to watch. Yeah. Well, we'll keep up with you guys. We'd love to have you back on again sometime soon, and just you know, before a movie, before a film festival circuit, catch up and see where you guys are going because you have so much going on with tight deadlines and two smart people working on something is just going to continue to make good things. And we thank you again for coming on today. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. Okay, Madison. You've watched some movies. I've watched some movies. Tell me what you caught up with over the last week. Uh, I watched A Promising Young Woman a couple of nights ago. And this was your first viewing. You've never seen this it This was my first viewing, yeah. I remember when I came and visited you in LA a couple of years ago, there was a bunch of signs for it all over the place. Yep. And what did you think? It was good. I think I probably had it a little overhyped in my mind for some reason. The chemistry between Carrie Mulligan and Bill Burnham just wasn't there for me. And so to me, it just, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how, like what you've got to do to get on, on screen chemistry, but they just didn't have it. And so that was like a part of the, the movie that I just didn't buy. And it was a significant part of the movie, right? It was, it was a yeah. big part of her character growth, theoretical character growth. And I was just like, I just kind of want to like look at my phone during this. Yeah. What did you heard before? I mean, did you find a lot of your friends <clears throat> loved it? Um, I think, I think, you know, I know Carrie Mulligan and I remember seeing, I mean, I think anytime I go to LA and I see movies on billboards, I'm just like, oh, that must be a really important movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe that's just, you know, LA street culture. Uh, and I think, I feel like me and you had talked about it at one point. And so mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, I was pretty careful not to like look at reviews and stuff beforehand, not to like bias myself, but I don't know. I, I, maybe it was just from, it was coming from inside the house. I thought that, you know, it was going to be better than it was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I love that you've given it years since it came out to watch it. Cause I'll say this, I enjoyed it. I liked it. But when it came out, it was, at least in L.A., just thought it was the greatest thing that ever came out. And wow. <laughs> this was like, it's 2019, I want to say. It was 2020. 
came out during the pandemic, December 2020. There was just a lot of time for people to think about things and to talk about things and to get worked up about things. So what I remember people saying is, this is the most important film. It's the best film. It should have won Best Picture. It should have, should have, should have, whatever. Because this was still like, not that it's over, but this was still Me Too era. Yeah. And so I had friends telling me this was the most important movie made of the last 20 years. And I was like, pump the brakes. I don't agree with that. Not just, I just think as a movie, it missed on a lot of ways. It missed in a lot of ways. It missed in a lot of fronts. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think the fact that, I mean, I'll be honest, the fact that she wasn't killing these men was yes. a letdown. It was a, it was letdown. a giant letdown. And then I thought, you know, in her little journal, that there was color coordination happening there with her nails and the stuff. Cause like there were so many things that they like just put an inordinate amount of attention on that yeah. usually would be like, you know, Chekhov's gun is on the, is on the, the shelf. And once you see the gun, you know, the gun's going to get fired. Yeah. And so I was just like, I was expecting more things to happen or to be more important than they were. And I was just like, you're telling me she's not killing these men. Like this isn't a revenge fantasy that, that I wanted it to be. It was just like, She's letting these guys go. It plays into gender stereotypes to have her let them off easy and not deliver justice. And yeah. if this was directed by a horror director, any horror director, it would be these guys get the axe. And Absolutely. that is the message. The message is communicated. There is no gray area. It's like you do the bad thing. You got to get the axe. That's got to yeah. be the lesson here. And or, or at the very least, have their lives ruined. And not just, like, let off. Yeah, like, It Follows, or other moralistic call-to-action movies. <laughs> if you do this, you get something bad in your life. That is how uh -huh. it goes. It's making it clear where I think, like, it's trying to stand opposite of maybe news media or the reality, which is, like, oftentimes people get off scot-free. If they're a Harvard rower or a straight-A student, then nothing ever happens to them. My problem was it stayed so close to real while also not being real of like, could she be doing this and pulling this off? I don't think so. Okay. In that case, go the other way. But it was just like so middling to yeah. your point. No, no chemistry with Bo Burnham. I like that they cast all these heartthrobs from the mid 2000s of like, yeah. oh, these are people our age would like and love. Okay. Yeah. But it never got to that satisfying end. And I hated the ending. I mean, hated the ending. Yeah, I mean, I did not expect her to die. No. <laughs> and then and then to have the guys burn their bot. I mean, like, I'm sure, great, she, you know, had contingency plans and the eventuality of her death, but, like, really? She dies? Like, that's, that's what, you're, what the message of your story is, is that it takes a woman's death to hold someone accountable? If the whole tone of the movie was different... It would have been fine if she died and like, this is just the way it goes. Nothing gets resolved. You should feel anger. And said it was like, she died and then something happened and a video was released and people probably lost a job. Yeah. It just wasn't enough. Yeah. And now that you've seen yeah. this and Saltburn, this is why a lot of people now are saying Emerald Fennell should direct, but she should not write her own movies because she's a pretty <laughs> bad writer. She's mm -hmm. a much better director who has an eye and a vision for doing things. Let somebody yeah. else write the story and maybe clean up the stuff that just is missed. 
Yeah, I mean, as far as direction goes, like great cinematography. Like, I yeah. think the opening scene was fantastic, especially when you don't, when you're still like, oh, is she going to kill someone? You know, the first moment where she like basically breaks the, fir- the fourth wall and looks directly in the camera and is like, what are you doing? I was like, whoa. Yeah. That's really powerful. But then it was just kind of a letdown from there because it was like, oh, she didn't kill this guy. She just like shocked him. Yeah, and it was it was a little bit of like uh, the girl on a on a one seated rocket of revenge is then like ah, but the nice funny guy who I remember is here, so I might as well just date him. Like yeah, it got so far sidetracked. I was like, this doesn't really track. If Kill Bill had Uma Thurman suddenly falling for like you know Patrick Dempsey for half the movie, it wouldn't be a great movie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with zero you know chemistry. So. I'm with you there. They missed on some. I mean, it's got a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. 90%? So again, again, people thought they this was this was a banner of truth to so much of the world. They were like, I mean, 2020 was a weird we year, need. so it was a weird year. Yeah. So if it was released in 2024 or in 2017, I don't think it would have got the same praise. Yeah. It just should have been a little stronger. Give us the yeah. punch. Yeah. I love Bo Burnham, but you know. That was just, I was really, I was really bummed out by that. <laughs> it was his second best thing in 2020 and 2020. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so you watch Promising Young Woman. Did you finish? Well, I finished For All Mankind. And? Really good. You know, I think the the pace at which I watched it, like it's all kind of a fever dream as you know, it is with, with when you're binging a show. I think the first Two seasons were probably the strongest two seasons, even though they were, they, it was a little bit of a slow burn, like it needed to build some momentum. But yeah, I feel like season four started, you know, I think I mentioned before that what I liked so much about some sci-fi movies is that it's it's humans versus space. And space is a great antagonist. The kind of in the premise of the show, humans have just gotten so good at doing space that space is no longer really a threat. And so in season four, it's more of, not necessarily Cold War, but it's back to kind of infighting between humans, human factions, whether it's the, U- the USA or Russia or a private corporation, it's back to more kind of infighting on like who gets the resources, which is interesting. It's just not the same kind of interesting that the first couple of seasons were. And so, you know, I'll be interested to see where they take the show in the future if they get back to a space is just dangerous sort of um, narrative, because I think that's that's it. That's where that's interesting. Do you feel like people are getting burnt out or do they need to kind of up the ante? I think they kind of need to up the ante, right? Because I think the arc for season one was we need to land on the moon. Season two arc was we've got a base on the moon. Season three arc was we need to land on Mars. Season four arc is we've got a base on Mars. Now we need to capture this asteroid. And, you know, they capture the asteroid that's worth trillions of dollars or whatever. And it's like, okay, now now where do we go? Like without upping the ante of like, you know, have you seen The Expanse? I haven't yet. I've watched oh two my episodes. Gosh. I started. That's Prime, right? Yeah, it's on Prime. Yeah. It's The Expanse is one of my absolute favorite shows, but it's you know very hard sci-fi. Like honestly, the For All Mankind could serve as a prequel to. I'm sure it's not going to, but it could serve as kind of a spiritual prequel to The Expanse, just in how they how you know they do the hard sci-fi. But I feel like For All Mankind, if they were to you know get interesting again they need to like discover life on mars they need to discover life on an asteroid or something that would just like change 
the playing field all over again. Yeah. It makes me wonder with these shows that go on four or five seasons, especially on streamers and not traditional television. It makes me wonder how much the streaming companies are really willing to keep putting these things on versus saying like, you had a good run, you told enough of the story, goodbye. So we'll see if it gets renewed. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, I'm not going to lie. Stories need endings. I don't think a, yeah. I don't think a show should just be continually greenlit just because it can. I think it should only be greenlit if there's a story worth telling. Because I think you know shows that just keep on going after 13 seasons. Yeah, it just like it's hard to be good for that long. Good is subjective. Yeah, you know <laughs> the yeah. NCISs and CSIs and uh, everything Ugh. else of the world. Ugh. They are forever. Yeah. So uh, what have you been watching? You've, you finished Silo? I'm a terrible host. I did not finish Silo yet. That's on my list cool. for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> been busy, went out of town, went to a, a lake for my fiance's birthday. So we're a little out and about. I did watch a movie last night on Netflix that they picked up. It's one of those weird, like, was in theaters for a hot minute, went away. Finally, someone's picked it up and licensed it called Queen Pins. So it's mm. Kristen, Kristen Bell from The Good Place and her co-star from The Good Place, whose name I am not remembering right now. She's also in Barry. Either way, she, was, she had an Australian accent in The Good Place. Regardless, the two of them, Paul Walter Hauser, a fantastic young actor. He has a goofy role, a couple sneaky cameos that I won't mention. Joel McHale as just like a loser husband. Ooh. Another role he seems to fit in too well. Also, he yeah. just doesn't get a lot of roles after Community, right? He's yeah, yeah. I know he's TV. he's in a yeah he's in a sitcom um, called Animal Control. I haven't seen it, um, but I I have heard that like a lot of Community alumni have filtered through, which does not surprise okay. me at all. In my my like my question is for a lot of these actors is it like are they trying to get bigger roles or are they just so content to just like have done what they've done and do these smaller things, you know? Yeah. And it must matter person to person, obviously, but sometimes I'm just watching and I'm like his name on the poster or billboard or IMDb and his few scenes, he had very little screen time. He must've got a huge check just because he is Joel McKay. Probably. So I'm like, okay, either way, it was a fun movie, not perfect based on true events, but Quite a bit of it was twisted and changed. Just kind of fun. The story of this couple of couponer neighbors who then went from, you know, using coupons and doing hacks to figuring out a kind of a flaw in the system and then just full on committing crime. So just big time crime. And it's really fun. It's the um, suburban mom, suburban mom to, you know, crime, white collar, queen pin pipeline. Well, you know, BB Rexa plays their dark web hacker friend. I love that that's like the new version of the trope that always has to be there. And she calls it pink collar crime. And you know what? That's a great name for it. Pink sure. collar crime. Yeah. So it just feels like, you know, it fits in with all these TikTok, YouTube peddling yeah. something, a hack that really is just crime. I saw a TikTok the other day where this girl was like, you guys are so dumb if you're not making all this much, you know, hundreds of thousands per month. Here's what I do. And she just literally explains and indicts herself on like real estate fraud and embezzlement and 
selling within the family and things that are not allowed. And you're like, oh, whoops, girl, that's not a hack. That's going to jail. That's illegal. <laughs> that is illegal. So, yeah, the show, I mean, it, it was a fun movie. Not perfect. There's some dumb moments. There's probably too, too many fart and diarrhea jokes. But mm-hmm. it's still kind of fun. The ending is a little weird. It ends on a note of like, you can be a girl boss even if you're in jail. And you can be a girl boss even if you plan on continuing to commit crime in countries with no extradition. Again, (laughs) weird with the endings. I'm like, we all just must be a little razzled after COVID of like, this makes sense. Uh, No wonder it didn't do great in theaters. And good for Netflix for picking up another fun movie to have on the main page for the next week and then it'll be there when someone wants something under two hours to watch on a saturday night yeah good lord good lord well let's do one last thing before we hop off i love meaningless holidays or remembrance Uh days so this weekend is spouse day did you know that i did not do we even want to know what the, the background of Spouse Day is? I don't think I do. I think it might just be better we just leave it be. Yeah. It's probably Jan- sexist anyways. January 26th is National Spouse Day. So I want to talk about just three of our favorite movie spouses. We won't even dip into TV. So who cool. are... I, I have a list of a couple people I've thought of. Don't know if you've got some off the top no, of your I've head. No, I've got a few. You, yeah, You've got a few to talk about. Let's start with, yeah, I'll start with just one of mine. Have you ever seen If Beale Street Could Talk? No. Okay. Fantastic movie. Very jazzy. Very sad. Tish Rivers, played by Kiki Lane, is just one of the best movie spouses of all time. Bonnie, her husband, goes to jail unrightfully, pretty much just a racially acted, throw someone in jail when something happens. I'm pretty sure it's a person of color who committed the crime. Anyways, she tries the entire movie, first off, just to win her family over and like him, then to get bail and get him out, then that's not working. She full-on travels to Puerto Rico and other countries and places just to get him out and to prove he did not commit this crime. And the whole time is also just like, sweet and optimistic and loving and it's just she she does an amazing job kiki lane does in the role but it's just a great story of like the length someone will go for their spouse completely out of love anyways that that takes my my number three spot that sounds good my first one is is from the movie past lives which just got an oscar nomination would be her husband Arthur played by John Magaro. You know, if you've seen Past Lives like what a heart-wrenching story in the first place. I was going through a breakup this summer when I saw it. It was just sobbing when I was watching it cuz yeah. yeah, oh my gosh, so sad. But, you know, I talked to people who who some of my friends watched this movie and they were like, "I can't believe how they like they treated her husband." Like, it's just so unfair. And I'm just like, like, maybe, maybe let's like reorient our imagination around how this husband just trusted his, his wife enough to let her have this experience and then trusted that she would come back to him. And I'm just like, what a good, like non, non-possessive, non-competitive example of, of, of a masculine stance in a, in a romantic relationship. 
because typically, you know, in rom-coms or whatever, like you get a man in there and there's competition for his wife. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to be a blowhard. He's going to be competitive. He's probably going to be an asshole in some way. And, you know, Arthur in past lives was none of those things. And like, I think it really served, it served the movie really well. And I think it served as a really great example of, of, you know, a different kind of masculinity that we can, we can see in movies. That scene with the two of them in bed talking. Yeah. was just so good where he's kind of talking about, am I the other, or, you know, he sat as they were both speaking in their, in their native tongue and he was just kind of there. And yeah, to your point, (laughs) the, the power in just being okay with it and trusting and saying, I know who I am. I know who you are. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Figure it out. That's pretty great. Yeah. My second one is going to be out of left field, but when's the last time you've seen Jurassic Park 3? Ooh, a long time ago? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe when it came out. I have seen it, though. It's not on many people's rewatch lists, but Paul Kirby, played by William H. Macy, is a great movie spouse. His son goes missing on the island, you know, maybe eaten by dinosaurs. Anyways, he tricks Alan Grant to go take them back. We have all these terrifying moments with the Spinosaurus, which are just horrible. Anyway, he's just a good movie spouse, because even though they're separated, he and T. Leone's character, he's just so calm and understanding and out of his element and trying his best in a world of dinosaurs, and he has some pretty heroic and courageous moments, even though he's still just kind of like a little insurance guy, scared and weebly the whole time. Anyways, just just a good movie about, you know, a good movie character who steps up and says, uh, not, not my playing field, but here we go. I'll try. I'll try and do my best. Yeah, that is a left-field one. I, I appreciate that one. My next one is from Everything Everywhere All at Once would be okay. K K Hui Kwan, who plays Waymond. You know, how, I don't think we could do better than, you know, I would have really liked just doing laundry and taxes with you. Like what a what a line, you know, especially I, I feel like especially, you know, in our generation, you're on TikTok and you see all these couples that are just like seeing the world and doing all the things and like trying to be larger than life. To have a line like that where, you know, the foundation of your relationship could just be boring and that's okay. It could be boring. It could be banal. It could be mundane. And like, that's, that's okay. Like, you know, that that's a, that's a good place to be in a relationship. And, you know, that movie, it's obviously multiversal. And so to have all of these variants of all of them and to just be like, oh, this version of us where we're just like running a laundromat and doing taxes might be one of the better versions of our lives together is really, it's, you know, pretty beautiful to me. Wow. That's a good one. I hadn't even thought of, yeah, I haven't thought about that movie in a little while. And that's a fantastic movie spouse. I don't want to go into honorable mentions because there's just too many. So I'm just going to skip to the, to the number one spot. Mine's going to go with Trinity. And we just talked about the matrix. So I know it's fresh on my mind. Yes. <laughs> but I'm just going to say, Trinity, in so many ways, is a fantastic movie spouse. Uh, if we even call it spouse, partner, whatever else you want to call yeah. it. She is great because she knows from the prophecy who Neo is before he really does. And not only gives him the space, but she's like, 
I'm not going to waste my time or whatever else, but I know who you are. You figure it out. I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to act with that knowledge, even if you won't. Sacrifice, love, tender care, support, and also just being an absolute badass the whole time, which is great and makes for a great movie. So especially in the first Matrix, I think Trinity, played by Carrie Ann Moss, has got to be one of my faves. You know, uh, that was on my list. I'm glad that you got it. <laughs> One of us had to. Then I'll go to my honorable mention, which have you seen Princess Mononoke? I haven't yet. Okay. Well, Princess Mononoke is my favorite Studio Ghibli film. Princess Mononoke, or San and Ashitaka are not married in the film, but they're, they're basically partners. Yeah. And I think Ashitaka is my pick for, for greatest spouse because there's this Miyazaki quote and I'm probably going to butcher it, but he says something that just because a boy and a girl show up in a story doesn't mean that they need to be, that they need to fall in love with each other. He says, he, he follows that by saying that if he can portray a story in which a boy and a girl mutually inspire each other to live, that he will maybe have portrayed a more true version of love. Um, and, and, that's what the movie Princess Mononoke is about, is it's about San and Ashitaka are inspiring each other to live, to just live life. Um, and they give each other the space to be that. Like Ashitaka never is trying to make San less wild than she is, because she's a, you know, a wolf princess. And he's not saying, like, you need to be less wild. He's just, and then she's not saying you need to, like, be, I mean, kind of, she's like, you need to pick a side, because Ashitaka doesn't really pick a side. But the, that kind of energy of, you know, of mutually inspiring each other to live is just like, it's fantastic. And it's all throughout Miyazaki's work, that, that kind of through line. I was going to say, I've heard that quote so many times, and now I'm like, oh, duh. Miyazaki, yeah. the grand storyteller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do. We watched, we watched Castle in the Sky. Right, we did um, the Alamo and, House. Yeah, and they they kind of there's kind of a little bit of a love story, but it's more, you know, it's not an overt romance. It's that these two characters inspire each other to go on their journey, and they they both are like mutually mutually keeping each other going. Yeah, and I like the idea that it doesn't have to be romance. Uh, have you watched Platonic yet on Apple TV? Yes, I have. <laughs> oh, baby. I mean, you want to just talk about. We don't get, to your point, enough of these stories in Western culture of a guy and girl are just having a good time helping each other and talking through the problems. It's so often like, but are they going to have sex? But are they going to end up together? Are they going to have a bunch of kids? It's like, that's not how all of our lives are going, right? Yeah. Um, so that must, yeah, that's a good one. Princess Mononoke. Yeah. Helping each other be better. That's I had it. one honorable mention that I wasn't sure about. But because I just saw part of it on a plane recently, it's on my mind, and I want to hear your thoughts. Frodo and Sam. Oh, my gosh. I think in more <laughs> ways than one, they are just, they are a couple. And it doesn't have to mean that they were, you know, shagging baggins. I just yeah. think in so many ways, they are kind of in the same camp of couple, spouse, partner, carrying each other, working yeah. with, you know, this heavy weight. It was on my list, and I was like, I don't know if I could talk enough about it. So anyway, well, I mean, it. you know, my two cents on that is that it's really too bad that we, you know, we don't see a lot of like tender male friendship. 
yeah. that that male friendship has to be cast in this really like dude broy sort of light where we're bonding over sports teams and we're like high fiving and stuff and you know that women can have women on women friendships that are that like kind of toe the line what what we might see as romantic but they're not they're just very intimate and, you know platonic friendships and that men just can't have that and so to be able to like have you know frodo and sam like i think that's a fantastic you know symbolic representation of what of what like male friendship could be if removed from all the toxicity <laughs> Yeah, I feel like when I've talked to people close to me about, oh, my friend and I did this, did that, I find that I have attracted, maybe you feel the same way, attracted and built a friends group of males who are a little more emotionally developed. I don't know what you want to say. Mm -hmm. You know, the number of people I'm like, oh my gosh, we saw this movie, we both cried. Or, you know, yeah, we were talking about this thing, and as soon as something bad happened in their life, we, we talked about it before a therapist or anything else. I don't think most guys are doing that. So we no. don't see it portrayed very often. It's either call me by your name and they got to be hooking up, which again is good to have those stories too because it happens. Yeah. Or it's, yeah, it's, it's Predator and it's Arnold and Carl Weathers, just, you know, the, the most powerful handshake of all time <laughs> and <laughs> not an emotion in sight. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right, that'll be what we'll have to work on. We're going to write our own Lord of the Rings, and it's just going to be a really cool. tender male story. Tender male stories, yes. <laughs> That's going to be our production company, TMS, Tender Male Story. TMS. I'm sure so many people will buy, in, buy into that. Yep. yep. Well, watch something good for this week. I know next week we're going to have my friend DJ on. We're going to talk about music, and then I'll, I'll have Kevin join us for the after portion to talk about the Grammys, because that'll be after next weekend. So Perfect. Do a little bit of recap, and I have no idea what's happening for the Grammys, what albums are in contention. It's, of course, got to be Taylor Swift and Beyonce or somebody in there. So get a little ready for some music chat next week. And we'll have a good weekend. Okay, bye.